Welcome to podcast number 11. This is the seventh podcast that I've done since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Weber, and this is the home of the Voice of the Arts. I know that many people have begun making their own bread during this time of pandemic. Making bread is something that I've been doing for close to 50 years. I genuinely enjoy doing it, and it supplies me with a loaf of bread that's superior and fresher than anything I can buy in a local supermarket. I was the third generation of a family business that supplied bakers with ingredients. Beginning back in 1913 with my maternal grandfather, Siegfried Edelberg, who emigrated to the United States from Latvia. I have demonstrated our company products to commercial bakers who used all different methods of bread production, from highly automated hamburger buns supplied to McDonald's to small shops where the doughs were divided, rounded, and shaped entirely by hand. I have made hundreds, if not thousands, of loaves of bread in my own kitchen, and I have learned a thing or two that I think are critical for home baking, and I'd like to share them with you. First and foremost, I would recommend buying a digital scale so that you can weigh your ingredients precisely. Baker's percentages are based on flour weight. Simply put, that means that a recipe calling for 3% yeast means 3% of the weight of the flour, not 3% of the total mix. Flour is always considered 100%, and everything else in the recipe, whether sugar, salt, eggs, water, etc., will be listed as a percentage of the flour weight. Another very important thing to consider is that in making a small dough in your kitchen with an ambient temperature of 68 degrees Fahrenheit is not, I repeat, is not an optimal temperature for fermenting a bread dough. Small doughs come to ambient temperature much more quickly than a 30 or 40 pound dough in a bakery. A larger dough insulates itself. Even though the fermentation process will generate heat, it is not enough to overcome the slowing effect of a cold temperature. Most bake shops have substantially larger ovens and proof boxes that warm the ambient bakery temperature to over 75 degrees. That seven degree differential makes a big difference. A heat lamp, a warming oven, a particularly warm space can be very helpful in getting consistency with each loaf, especially if you want to work with a starter. Another recommendation would be to buy dry yeast from a company called SAF, S-A-F as in Frank. It's a Belgian company that started making instant dry yeast before any of its competitors, most likely because they were supplying yeast to developing countries where refrigeration was not readily available. I have found their yeast to be far more robust than any of the dry yeasts that can be purchased in local supermarkets. It can be purchased online through King Arthur Flour. Just to be clear, this is not a paid commercial. This is from my own observations and trial and error. Let's begin the show with some observations by none other than Jackie Mason.
they're still staring at me. I told you before, I don't care if you laugh or not. I'm not saying this because I'm an arrogant person. I don't say it out of arrogance. I say it when I say I don't care if a person laughs or not. It's because I know who I am. That's the trick. The great trick is to know who you are. Most people don't know. Thank God I know. I didn't always know. I'm not ashamed to admit it. There was a time I didn't know who I was. I went to a psychiatrist. I did. He took a look at me right away. He said, this is not you. <laughs> I said, this is not me. Then who is it? He said, I don't know either. I said, what do I need you for? He said, to find out who you are. He said, together, we're going to look for the real you. I said, if I don't know who I am, how will I know who to look for? And even if I find me, how will I know if it's me? Besides, if I want to look for me, why do I need him? I can look myself. Or I can take my friends. We know where I was. Besides, I said to myself, what if I find the real me and I find that he's even worse than me? Why do I need him? I don't make enough of myself. I need a partner. Ten years ago, I've been glad to look for anybody. Now I'm doing good. Why should I look for him? He needs help. Let him look for me. He said, the search, he said, the search for the real you will have to continue. That will be $100, please. I said to myself, this is not the real me. Why should I give him the $100? I'll look for the real me. Let him give him the $100. What if I find the real me? He don't think it's worth the $100. Then I'm stuck buying money with the real him. I said to myself, for all I know, the real me might be going to a different psychiatrist all the time. I'd even be a psychiatrist himself. I said, wouldn't it be funny if you're the real me and you owe me $100? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll charge you $50, we'll call it
Not that I want to talk about these things because this show is not about sex, and I'm proud of that fact. I'm proud of the fact that this is the only clean show probably on Broadway or any place else. I don't think there's a clean show left anyway outside of this show. Every show today is about one thing, sex, and sex, that's all you hear about in every show. We're living through a period of the vulgarization of American standards, American culture, American entertainment. Everything became sex. Every major novel today is about sex. It's all you hear about. Every major movie, sex and sex. Why don't they talk about something else? Why don't they talk about music? Don't you think music is more important than sex? I mean, for men in your condition. <laughs> I always thought that music was more important. That's the truth. I always did. Then I started to notice that if I don't hear a concert for a year and a half, it don't bother me. <laughs> Is that too complicated for you, Dejo? I shouldn't say a joke like that because there's a lot of hookers sitting right in front of you. They might resent that there's a lot of hookers here. Why, well, you thought you was the only one? <laughs> That's not nice. That's nice, nice. You don't look like a hooker compared to this one. You see, this <laughs> You can't tell who's a hooker or not. Get up. I want to show them an example. Of that.
Richard Yates was an American author who came of age during the 1950s, and many of his stories and novels covered the period in America after World War II. Most of his works were out of print shortly after his death in 1992. An article by Stuart Onan in the Boston Review revived interest in his works and fortunately has made it possible to read them. One can understand the lack of popularity of his writing. The two novels that I've read recently, Revolutionary Road and Easter Parade, might be called depressing by some, but I find them eminently readable and filled with a hard but unmistakable truth about our dreams and our aspirations. In the novel Easter Parade, we meet the Grimes family, headed by a divorced mother nicknamed Pookie, a heavy drinker who aspires to be part of the leisure class, which in the early part of last century was predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant with a strong attachment to Great Britain. Pookie is divorced from her husband, who is a headline writer for a New York newspaper. She moves from one exclusive area to another to expose her daughters to the right kind of people, but finances usually necessitate a rapid exit. She's happy to marry off her beautiful elder daughter to an upstairs neighbor in their Greenwich Village apartment because he's dashing and has a British accent that he picked up while in Britain with his folks. Pookie thinks his folks, Jeffrey and Edna Wilson, are wealthy landed gentry, but they're really living in genteel poverty. The selection I'm about to read takes place at the North Shore Long Island home of the Wilsons. Pookie and Emily, her younger daughter, who's gotten a full scholarship to Barnard, are visiting with the Wilsons, and Pookie is marveling at what she perceives to be their estate. And the worst problem is the heating, he went on. My father built it as a summer place, you see, and there's never been a proper heating system. One of the tenants did put in an oil burner that looks vaguely adequate, but I imagine we'll have to shut off most of the rooms this winter. Well, cheers. I think it's a charming house, Pookie said, settling down to enjoy the cocktail hour. I won't hear a word against it. Look, Emmy, see the lovely old portraits? They're some of Jeffrey's ancestors. There are stories connected with every single thing in this room. Mostly very dull stories, I'm afraid, Jeffrey Wilson said. Fascinating stories, she insisted. Oh, Jeffrey, I can't tell you how I've come to love it out here. All the lovely meadows and the woodland and Sarah's cottage and this wonderful old house. It has such... I don't know. Such flair. Does it have a name? A name? You know, the way estates have names, like Jalno or Green Gables. Jeffrey Wilson pretended to think it over. The way it looks now, he said, I suppose we might call it overgrown hedges. And Pookie didn't realize he was kidding. Oh, I like that, she said. Not overgrown, though. That's not quite right. What about... What about great hedges? Hmm, he said kindly. Yes, rather nice. That's what I'm going to call it anyway, she announced. Great Hedges, St. Charles, Long Island, New York. Well, he turned to Emily, how are you finding your college? Oh, it's very interesting. Emily took a sip and sat back to watch her mother get drunk. She knew it wouldn't take long. With the second drink, Pookie began to monopolize the talk, telling long, pointless anecdotes about houses she'd lived in, hunched forward in her deep chair with her elbows on her slightly parted knees. Emily, sitting across from her, could watch her face loosen as she talked and drank, watch her knees move farther apart until they revealed the gartered tops of her stockings, the shadowed sagging insides of her naked thighs, and finally the crotch of her underpants. No, but the nicest house I ever had was in Larchmont. Remember Larchmont, dear? We had real casement windows and a real slate roof. 
Of course, we couldn't afford it, but the minute I saw it, I said, that's where I want to live, and I went right in and signed the lease. And the girls loved it. I'll never forget how, oh, thank you, Jeffrey, just one more, and then we've really got to be. Why couldn't she get drunk quietly with her legs curled up in the cushions like Edna Wilson? A little more sherry, Emily? No, thanks, I'm fine. And of course, the schools were wonderful in Larchmont. That's one reason I wish we could have stayed. Still, I've always thought it did the girls a world of good to move around to different places. And then, of course, by the time she was ready to leave at last, Jeffrey Wilson had to help her to the door. It was getting dark. Emily took her arm. It felt soft and weak. And they made their way past trees and overgrown shrubbery toward the long road to the railroad station. She knew Pookie would sleep on the train. She hoped she would anyway. It would be better than if she stayed awake and talked. And their dinner, if they had any, would be a hot dog and coffee in Penn Station. But she didn't mind. The weekend was almost over, and in a matter of hours, she'd be back in school. School was the center of her life. She had never heard the word intellectual used as a noun before she went to Barnard, and she took it to heart. It was a brave noun, a proud noun, a noun suggesting lifelong dedication to lofty things and a cool disdain for the commonplace. An intellectual might lose her virginity to a soldier in the park, but she could learn to look back on it with wry, amused detachment. An intellectual might have a mother who showed her underpants when drunk, but she wouldn't let it bother her. And Emily Grimes might not be an intellectual yet, but if she took copious notes in even the dullest of her classes, and if she read every night until her eyes ached, it was only a question of time. There were girls in her class and even a few Columbia boys who thought of her as an intellectual already, just from the way she talked. It's not just a bore, she said once, of a tiresome 18th-century novel. It's a pernicious bore. And she couldn't help noticing that several other girls made liberal use of the word pernicious around the dormitory during the next few days. But there was more to being an intellectual than a matter of speaking, more even than making the dean's list every semester or spending all your free time at museums and concerts, and the kind of movies called films. There was learning not to be stricken dumb when you walked into a party full of older, certified intellectuals, and not to make the opposite mistake of talking your head off saying one inane or outrageous thing after another in a hopeless effort to atone for whatever inane or outrageous thing you'd said two minutes before. And if you did make a fool of yourself at parties like that, you had to learn not to writhe in bed afterwards in an agony of chagrin. You had to be serious, but this was the maddening paradox. You had to seem never to take anything very seriously. You've been listening to a selection from Richard Yates' novel, The Easter Parade, published in 1976.
drive in fast cars you like, if low bars you like, if old hymns you like, if fair limbs you like, if May West you like, or me undressed you like, why nobody will oppose. When every night the set that smart is intruding and nudist parties in studio, anything goes. When a missus McLean, God bless her, can get Russian red to yes sir, then I suppose anything goes. When Rockefeller still can hoard enough money to let Max Gordon produce his show, anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good bad today, and black's white today, and day's night and that gent today you gave a cent today once had several chateaus when folks who still can ride in jitneys find out Vanderbilt's and Whitney's lack baby clothes anything goes when Sam Goldwyn can with great conviction instruct Anna's men in diction then Anna shows anything goes when you hear that lady mental standing up, now does a handspring landing up on her toes. Anything goes. Just think of those shots you got, and those knocks you got, and those blues you got from those news you got, and those pains you got in any pain you got from those little radios. So Mrs. R, with all her trimming, can broadcast the bed from and cause Frank to know anything goes. We were very tired. We were very merry. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. It was bare and bright and smelled like a stable. But we looked into a fire. We leaned across a table. We lay on a hilltop underneath the moon. And the whistles kept blowing and the dawn came soon. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. And you ate an apple and I ate a pear. From a dozen of each we had bought somewhere. And the sky went warm. And the wind came cold, and the sun rose dripping, a bucket full of gold. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. We hailed, good morrow, mother, to a shawl-covered head, and bought a morning paper, which neither of us read. And she wept, God bless you for the apples and pears. And we gave her all our money, but our subway fares. Poet Edna St. Vincent Millay reading her poem, Recuerdo. Before that, we heard Cole Porter singing his own composition, Anything Goes. You're listening to podcast number 11 here on The Voice of the Arts with your host, Joe Weber. Up next, another Cole Porter tune sung by the composer himself, you're the top.
studio space this time. You got it, Bruce. I mean, really. Yeah. Explore the space. Okay. I like what I'm hearing. Roll it. Thank You for Stopping by Jack Handy. Thank you for stopping. You have obviously found me unconscious by the side of the road, or at a party, or possibly propped up against a wall someplace, and you have wisely reached into my pocket and found this medical advisory. If you found other things in my pockets, kindly do not read or keep them. 
They are none of your business and or do not belong to you. And remember that even though I am unconscious now, when I wake up, I will remember the things I had. If I am wearing a tie, please loosen it. But again, do not take it off and keep it. It is not yours and is probably more expensive than you can afford. If I am not wearing a tie, look around at the other people who have gathered to look at me and see if one of them is wearing a tie that might belong to me. If so, please approach that individual and ask for my tie back. If he says it is his, say you do not think so. If he insists, give him one of the cards in the same pocket where you found this note of my attorney and tell the person he will be hearing from him soon. Keep me warm. Take off your coat and put it around me. Do not worry. You will get it back. If you do not, within 30 days, contact the attorney on the card, and he will advise you. If you must, build a fire to keep me warm. But, and this is very important, do not roast me over the fire. I say this because many people who stop to help others are not that smart and are capable of doing such a thing. There are some pills in one of my pockets. Take them and hold on to them. If any authorities ask you about them, say they are yours. If I am outdoors under a hot sun, do not allow children near me with a magnifying glass. Even if they are on leashes, do not allow monkeys near me. Do not allow others to make fun of me, poke me with sticks, or if an anthill is nearby, pour honey on me. Do not allow onlookers to pose with me for funny photos. Failure to stop any of these things may be construed as participation in them and may subject you to severe legal remedies. Try to keep me calm. If you are not a physically attractive person, try not to let yourself be the first thing I see when I wake up. Call an ambulance. I guess that would be obvious to most people, but you never know. If I am on fire, put me out. If you put me out by rolling me on the ground, do not let me roll down a hill. If I do roll down a hill and get stuck under some bushes, just leave me there. You've given me enough help already. If I suddenly begin to sweat profusely and my entire body begins to shimmy violently, do not worry, that is normal. If I am bleeding, how'd that happen? What did you do now? Even though I am unconscious, do not dangle things over me. I do not like that. Answer my cell phone if it rings. If it is a woman named Peggy, pretend to be me and say you are breaking up with her. If I have wet my pants, get a glass of water and act like you tripped and spilled it on me. If I appear near death, do not call a priest, and do not call a rabbi and a minister and have them all go into a bar and do something funny, because I don't want my life to end up as one big joke. Get a better job. If you have time to stop for unconscious people, you are obviously not working at full capacity. Thank you again for stopping. Now please stand back and give me some air. You've been listening to Thank You for Stopping, written by Jack Handy in a collection called what I would say to the Martians. Well, folks, that's going to wrap up podcast number 11. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long, here from the Voice of the Arts. If you enjoyed the show, write a review and tell everyone you know about these podcasts here on the Voice of the Arts. Mm-hmm.